Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. And if you follow high school sports, this was a huge week for Iowa City, City High and West High in the championship game. And West High won, but it's really, um, it's just a cool week, especially we know some of the families. One of our neighbor girls did a great job, so really fun to play pull for those kids and families. So a um, couple with a Parkview connection too. So that was awesome. And the boys, our West High boys are at state this week too. So that's cool. So let's talk about something a little bigger now. Let's talk about the kingdom of God. All right. So uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Um, we are covering 50 verses today. So promise three o'clock you'll be out of here so guys it is awesome so we've been studying the gospel of mark um since the fall and so uh it's one of the it's the shortest gospel it's the fastest moving gospel the word immediately happens 44 times in this gospel the whole point of the gospel is that jesus is the king when he first came out in chapter one he said the kingdom of god is at hand and the reason the kingdom of god is at hand is because the king was at hand and so the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark take about three years. The last six chapters take one week, okay? So first 10 chapters, we saw the miracles, the teaching, the power. Jesus is showing that he's the king. But some of you guys have been tracking with this might remember that sometimes Jesus would heal somebody, and then he'd tell them, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who did this. Like his motive or strategy in the first 10 chapters was, I'm going to show that I'm a king, but I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I mean, but he's raising dead people and he's drawing crowds. It's still a big deal. But it's a whole different tone now in these last six chapters. In fact, we call this the Passion Week, Sunday through Sunday. Um, and so there'll be a little little sketch up here on the screen. Last week, we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. For, for weeks now, he's been telling his followers, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get killed, and then I'm going to rise again from the dead. He knew it was coming. And so he's coming into Jerusalem, and think Iowa City during Ragbri, during graduation, during homecoming weekend for the university, and City and West proms. If that's possible, have them all on the same weekend and try to find a place to eat. That's Jerusalem during the Passover. It is packed out, and um, normally um, 50,000-ish people. Now you're swelling to about 250 to maybe as many as a million people in Jerusalem. So the tension is on, okay? And so Jesus is stepping in as he rides into Jerusalem on a colt, and everybody's worshiping him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Monday, Jesus goes to the temple, and he cleans house. Like he drives out all the money changers. He is furious at the people who are making money off of people just trying to come and worship God. And so that's on Monday, just totally cleans house. And so when you read temple, don't just think, uh, religious stuff. Like the temple at that time was the hub of the economy, the hub of political power, and the hub of religious power. Jesus steps right into that and cleans house. Okay, today we're going to talk about what he did on Tuesday. He's going to go back to the temple, and he's done cleaning house. Now he's going to start cleaning some people. Okay, he's going to start bringing truth to the situation should be going on. Wednesday, he went back and taught, and that's what you'll see next week when Dave Foster comes and walks you through Mark 13, which is a lot of prophecy, what Jesus saw coming next. And so it's a fascinating chapter. And then on Thursday, that's the day Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples, which we just commemorated, the Lord's Supper. And then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, and he was arrested. Now you're tipping into Friday, where in the early morning hours, he's arrested, he's put on trial. And then by 9 o'clock that morning on Friday, he's hanging on a cross. And he's dead, he's in a tomb. 
until Sunday morning and he rises. So that's, that's the week that's coming up for Jesus. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus is revealing in the temple that he is the king. And the big question is, this morning, I don't want this to just be a history lesson, that you leave today going, oh yeah, I learned a few more things about Passion Week, that's cool. No, the big point that Jesus is making through all of this is that he is the king. And so the big question we have to answer this morning, just like all those people in the temple needed to answer, is who is your king? Who do you bow your knee to? Who calls the shots in your life? And we're speaking this morning, at least the guy talking here, I'm assuming you, is that we have an addiction to running our own lives. We don't, our hearts don't naturally skip when we think about submitting to authority. But the big question is, who is your king? So after we walk through this crazy day in Jesus' life, we're going to circle back and just answer that question, who is your king? So let me pray, and we'll jump into this. So Jesus, help us uh, this morning, just, just... Open our ears so that you can speak directly to each one of us, if it's live stream or if it's here in this room. Speak to us and show us that you are our king, that our knees need to bend before you. We need to bow before you because you are a good king. Expose to us today the ways that we're not bowing our knee, the way we're not letting you be our king. God, expose those things. And only you can do that because our hearts are hard and we, we tend to run our own show. Would, would you speak to me and to all these folks and show us that our knees need to bow to you, the true king. You're awesome. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's pick it up. Mark eleven twenty seven. It's the day after Jesus cleared the temple, okay? So now he's rolling into the temple on Tuesday morning. And it's not a surprise, but guess who's first to meet him? It's all the religious leaders. These guys are ticked after what Jesus just did the day before. And so when Jesus is coming to the temple, they have a big question for him. And that question is, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who said you could roll into Jerusalem on a donkey and be worshipped? And then who said you could come into the temple and just clean house? Who do you think you are? Now, it's the kind of question that doesn't really wait for an answer. It's kind of like maybe when you were a kid, your mom said, who do you think you are? That's not the place to go, Doug Schillinger. And I, you know, like that's, you're just supposed to be quiet and realize you did something very wrong, right? And so they're not really looking for an answer. They're just saying, we just know you are not of us. You don't have our training. You're not from our schools. You don't think like we do. Who do you think you are? And they ask him, where are you getting this authority What I want you to see, the reason I'm in a teaching team, there's three different guys on our staff teaching this passage in different places today. Every one of them just picked one of the little stories. Sorry, you're getting me. We're going to do all of them. And what I want you to see, what I want you to see is like, I just marvel at, at, at Jesus' wisdom, how he just navigates this day. So they come at him with this hard question and look at his answer on his feet. I mean, my wife, Lori, is amazing. The way she can just bust out a one-liner is like, man, that would have taken me hours to say. You know, like, I get, I'm, when there's a hard question, and she just, Jesus is even better than Lori. So Jesus says, <laughs> Jesus said, I will ask you one question. Answer me. I will tell you by what, I authority, by what authority I do these things, uh, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, wow, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? 
but shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what, I, by what authority I do these things. Boom, round one goes to Jesus. Okay, so the John they're talking about here is John the Baptist. He's the guy that preceded Jesus and preached that people need to repent and return to God. And he also said that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. So if those guys had said, well, we believe John's authority came from God, Jesus could have said, well, then why didn't you believe in him? I'm the king, I'm the savior, bow down, worship, and let's just change this temple, let's just go, let's get it on. So, but they, they did not believe that, they did not respond to the clear ministry of John the Baptist or the clear ministry of Jesus. So they weren't gonna say it's from God. But then they were also terrified to say that John was just from human authority. Luke tells us, Luke's gospel tells us that they were afraid if they had said that, they would have been killed with rocks. Like these people would have picked up rocks and beat them to death. Like the crowd was convinced that John spoke from God. And so like if they would have said, nah, John wasn't that big a deal, they'd been in trouble. So they were stuck. It's so cool. And all these questions you're gonna see, everybody's trying to trap Jesus. (laughs) Jesus ends up flipping questions and trapping the asker. And that's exactly what happens here. So they just go, we we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not gonna tell you either. And then Jesus goes on and he tells a story. So this is significant because I told you Mark is the shortest gospel. He's in a hurry to get through the story 44 times the word immediately. There's only two times he slows down to tell a parable. The other gospels are loaded with parables, but there's only two in Mark and this is one of them. It's like Jesus saved this one, at least Mark saved this one for right here. And Jesus starts telling a story. There in the temple, I think the crowds are starting to gather. Like, remember when you went to school and there might have been a fight in the lunchroom, and like before you know it, there's a crowd. And that's, that's what's going on. Tension, crowd. So Jesus starts telling a story. It's a story about a vineyard. And this vineyard had an owner that really set this vineyard up to succeed, put walls around it, built, dug a well, all these things. It was really set up to succeed. And then he hired some tenants to take care of it. And then as often would happen in Jesus' day, the vineyard owner went to another place to establish another vineyard, hire some tenants there, go to another place. Very common practice in Jesus' day. And so after some time when a harvest would have been generated and income would have been generated, the owner sent a servant to go and collect from the tenants. But the tenants beat the servant up and sent him back empty-handed. Any of you guys that are renting, don't try that with your landlord. That doesn't work, okay? We'll read about you in the press citizen. Don't do that. Don't do that, okay? But, but this owner was patient, and he sent a second servant and a third. He sent multiple servants. And increasingly, the hostility against the servants grew. One was beaten and ashamed in some way, disgraced in some way, then sent back. Then they started killing the servants. And so finally, you get to verse 6 in chapter 12. Finally, the owner is being so patient. In verse 6, it says, he still had another to send a beloved son. And finally he said to them, and finally he sent him to them saying, certainly they will respect my son. And when the tenants saw the son coming, they just saw their opportunity. Man, if we kill that son, then this vineyard becomes ours. So they beat the son, they killed him and just threw his body out without a burial, complete disrespect toward the owner. Now, if the crowd that's gathering and hearing this story would have been absolutely astonished. Like what? just waiting for what's going to happen next. What is that owner going to do? And in verse 9, Jesus said, the owner will come and he will destroy, he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. You know, sometimes when Jesus told a story, 
people would circle back afterwards and say, what did you mean by that story? Like, who, was, who were all the characters? This, after this story, you could have heard a pin drop because everybody knew what Jesus was saying. If you read the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, there's a beautiful description there of Israel, God's people, being a vineyard, that God has prepared a people. So the vineyard is the people of God. The tenants are the religious leaders, the ones that God had entrusted the care of his people to. And these people were selfish. These people did not. They rejected the authority of God, and they, they used their position for their own glory. And so it was very clear. In fact, at the end of this story, they were ticked at Jesus. They knew exactly who he was talking about. And so, and who were the servants being sent? Well, you look through the Old Testament. That's Isaiah. That's Jeremiah. That's Ezekiel. That's Amos. That's Micah. Prophet after prophet after prophet who came to speak from God. And the religious leaders had nothing to do with it. And God's people went astray. Even as recent as John the Baptist, just the predecessor right before Jesus, was also killed and rejected, even though he spoke with authority from God. And so... Um, and so these guys knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. And you could have heard a pin drop. And they walked away mad at Jesus. Okay, it keeps going. And so what you're going to see now is that these guys are so ticked at Jesus, but they can't do anything. Like they can't arrest him in front of all these crowds because these crowds love Jesus. And they're really liking his teaching and all that. So they got to trick him. They got to trap him. They got to make him say something stupid in front of all these people and have the people turn on him. So they take the best and the brightest with the hardest questions and they start throwing questions at Jesus. They start playing stump the Messiah, but it's not going to happen. Okay, so the first question they roll out comes from one of the Pharisees. And he asks this question. He says, this is uh, Mark 12, verse 13. He says, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Like right before this, they butter Jesus up. Oh, Jesus, we know you're so sincere. We know you say what's true. And he's sitting there going, yeah, okay, come on. What's your question? I see your game. I see your heart. In fact, the word trap was a word used for animals in hunting. Like they, they were just trying to trap Jesus. And they asked him that question, is it right to pay taxes? And they thought that was a genius question because if Jesus said, yeah, you're, sp you're supposed to pay taxes, then all the Jewish nationalists, who were really hoping he was the Messiah coming to overthrow Rome, man, they would have been so mad at him. They would have been so disappointed. They probably would have just charged him and beat him up themselves, okay? But if Jesus had said, no, nah, don't worry about paying taxes, man, those Roman soldiers hanging out in this crowd would have been on him like this. Like there was no way out of this question. They asked the question, they're probably chuckling, and they got their buddies in the back going, this could be great. Watch what Jesus is going to do. So, so Jesus just asked him, he said, could you just give me a coin? Give me a coin. And so one of them hands him, a coin? He said, whose, whose image is on that coin? They go, oh, Caesar. Okay. You render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you render to God the things that are God's. And the Bible says that they marveled at him. You need to understand that they isn't the crowd. The they is the askers. Like they are blown away at his genius. Like, whoa, that was an amazing answer. So yeah, you give to Caesar his little coins and his little taxes, but who's in, his, who's in God's image? They, they knew Genesis 1, that we we're created in the image of God. Yeah, you give to Caesar things that belong to him, but you give your whole life to God, and you serve him. Boom, two points for Team Jesus right there, all right? So next comes the next question asker. And I, it's starting to feel like when I played high school football, I was on a team where we didn't have freshmen and sophomore teams. We just had a team. And so, like, when you're a freshman, you played against seniors, and there was this stupid drill, but it was probably good, called hamburger, where you put two blocking dummies out, probably about as wide as this platform, and you're about 20 yards back, and they put 
It always seemed like for me, it was the strongest, biggest senior, and then there's me. And I'm supposed to run a football through there without getting crushed and tackled. And so, like, you'd even jockey in line. Rob Clark was the guy nobody wanted to go against. He was huge, he was big, and he was mean. And so then, you're always, like, jockeying, who's supposed to get Rob Clark? Okay, I'm going to go back here. So I have to imagine, the next guy asking the question had to be like that. Is it really my turn asking a question? Like, those first two got completely destroyed. But the next guy to go up and ask a question was a Sadducee. And so I know sometimes it's hard to keep track of Pharisee, Sadducee. Some of the distinctives of Sadducees is they were religious leaders. They were tended to be very wealthy. They were very elite. They had more political clout maybe than some of the others. They were kind of odd, though. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, not the whole thing. And they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's a dumb joke. But you can't, you just have to go there on that. So, but that, that was kind of their standing. And so to kind of prove their point that a resurrection doesn't make any sense, they throw out this preposterous story. So they go to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you're Mr. Resurrection guy. Let us ask you a question. There's a woman who marries a guy, and then the guy dies. And it was culturally appropriate that that family would then offer another son to that woman. And so this family had seven sons. And this woman married the first one, he died. So she married brother two, he died. Married brother three, he died. By now I'm calling CSI. Like something is up with this woman. Like what's going on here? But she goes all the way through all seven. They all die. And then she dies. Like I'm surprised she lasted that long. Seven weddings, seven dudes, all that. So then she dies. And so they just throw out like, (laughs) so in the resurrection, Jesus, did you say there's a resurrection? Whose wife is she going to be? You know, like there's no way you're going to answer this one. (laughs) I love Jesus' response. Verse 24, if I can find it here. He looks at these guys and he says, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Man, there's, there's no backing down to Jesus right now. He's rolling up the sleeves, and he's going toe-to-toe. Can, I should have said this earlier. Whenever you see religious leaders in the Bible, put yourself in there, especially as if you've been a Christian more than five years. Just consider yourself that we do the same things, all right? We begin to reject. We begin to dodge. We, we have maybe our favorite parts of the Bible over others, and who are you? I've got this down. Like, so don't, I mean, we're making fun of them. But just, you're making fun of yourself too. I'm just saying that. So, so he says, like, you're wrong. You need to know the scriptures or the power of God. And then in verse 26, he goes, let me, let me tell you something about the dead being raised. He said, have you not read in the book of Moses? Stop. Like, that's their five books of the Bible, the book of Moses. Like, that's five out of 39 Old Testament books. Those are the five they clung to. He says, by the way, haven't you read the book of Moses? It's like, Jesus, you're talking to a Sadducee. Yes, they know that. But he says, you obviously haven't read it because, and then he points to the time where God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, through a burning bush. And he told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he says, he is not God of the dead, but he's God of the living. You're quite wrong. Okay, so he even pulls out one of the most famous verses from the five books that they believe in and that they know, and he pulls out a little verb tense, going English teacher on them, and just saying, like, he doesn't say, I was the, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were dead, but Jesus still calls them, or God still called them his people, because these, these folks live forever. He's their God. He, there is a resurrection. And so, um, again, Jesus just nails one of these scholars. Now, the last question, there's one more question. And I think this guy, from what I can tell in the text, I don't think this guy had an agenda. I think this guy, he's a scribe. So again, this is one of the top scholars in 
in this time of the Old Testament. He would have devoted his life to writing out and teaching the Old Testament law. This guy knew the law. But there seems to be a different tone in this man's question. I don't know that he had conspired beforehand. I think he was watching these volleys in this debate and just so amazed at Jesus. I think he just asked Jesus a genuine question because one of the biggest debates was the scribes had 613 laws. They, they had some from the Old Testament, but then they threw a ton of their own in there. And they used to debate about, okay, out of all these 613, which is the greatest law? What's the most important one? So he, he just brings Jesus into that conversation. Jesus, what would you say is the greatest law? And Jesus said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And there are no other, there's no other commandment greater than these. And it says that the scribe was amazed at Jesus' teaching. And, and he said, teacher, I wish he'd have said Lord right there. I wish he'd have just kind of fallen on his face. But he kind of treated Jesus as an equal. He said, teacher, you've answered correctly. And listen to what Jesus said to the, to the scribe. He said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom. <laughs> so, I mean, that just sails past us. But this guy is like, everybody in the country would look at this guy as, if anybody's in God's kingdom, man, it's got to be that dude right there. Because he's a scribe. He knows. He teaches. He knows the law inside and out. And Jesus says, you know what? You're pretty close. You're, you're almost there, buddy. Keep trying. Like, <laughs> that's, that's Jesus on his feet, just answering the question. He's close, but he's not in. And the text tells us that after that, no one dared. No one dared to ask Jesus a question. Who's in charge? You got to remember that during this whole Passion Week, Jesus is calling all the shots. He didn't, poor helpless Jesus didn't get captured and thrown on a cross and, oh, if he could have resisted, he would have. But no, no, no. Jesus is fully in charge here. You're going to see it even more so, more starkly so during the trials and the, the beatings and the crucifixion. Jesus could have stopped that at any time. Jesus is calling the shots here. And while they came to evaluate him, he was evaluating them. He said, you guys, the best you got is, is getting pretty close, but he's not there. Like that just had to be absolutely humbling. And so, so then Jesus wrapped up that time and he had a couple more points that he made. I just want to bring one to our attention. Uh, he, he walked his disciples over. He said, hey guys, come on over here. I want to show you something. So they went to a part of the temple where people gave their offerings. And from what I understand, the area had 13 big receptacles, kind of like big horns. That and in that day, the money, the wealth you had was in coins. And these were metal receptacles. And so it was a part of the temple where people gave their offerings. And so the wealthy people are coming with their big old bags and they're pouring it in there. And you're just, you know, it's just echoing in the temple. Like people are giving this. And in the midst of all this big giving and kind of the big show, this poor widow woman comes up with maybe just a little pouch in the midst of all this, she just comes and just dink, dink, puts in two little coins that somebody did the math, and it was worth about eight minutes of labor in a day, in an average labor. I mean, just very small. Maybe you could get, maybe get a small meal out of what she was putting in there, but she's putting these two coins. I learned something this week that, that sometimes in this offertory area, the priests and the scribes would watch. They're kind of like keeping track. I don't do that during the offering here, but like, just I'd be like, like the pastor kind of watching who's giving. And you know what they used to do when a poor person would come up and give, particularly this poor widow? 
they would start kind of laughing at her, making her feel really stupid. Because in that day, if you didn't have much money, then you must have you you must have done something wrong. God doesn't love you. You're cursed, and that's all you got to bring to God. You are hopeless. You are worthless. So here's this woman giving her offering under that veil of shame. But what's awesome, it's just five or ten feet away from her. It's the son of God. He's watching her. And he says, hey, guys, come over here. I want you to see this woman. I wanted you to watch what she's doing. Verse 41, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box for they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. While the scribes taunted, Jesus applauded. And so that woman may have left the temple that day with no idea where her next meal was coming from, but by her act, and you know, she could have gone 50% there and that still would have been incredibly significant. She threw all in and it just demonstrated her faith. But she didn't know where her next meal was coming from. She knew her God was great and was good and she could trust him. And out of all these people that gave, that's the one that Jesus said, you guys watch her. You guys look at her heart. So that's it. That's, we did 50 verses and that's what, that's what happened. But I, like I said earlier, we're going to go a little bit longer here because this isn't just fact time. This isn't just Passion Week trivia. Let me throw you a few more things this year. Now you know a little bit more about Passion Week. Um, let's, let's ask this question. What if Jesus were to come in here this morning and start to clean house here with us? What if he was to start teaching us and hitting different areas in our lives, driving at the question, am I truly your king? Am I your king? So it's what's, I'm, I'm going to speak from me, and I'm just going to assume you're like me, because if Jesus were to come here and start talking to me, uh, he's talking to a man that's addicted to running his own life a man who just likes calling my shots. I like maybe selected things about God here and there, but left to myself, I'm just going to do what I want to do, okay? And so um, he's speaking to me, and I think Jesus would come today to us and say, you know what? I'm coming to rescue you from your small little kingdoms filled with strife and worry and fear and hatred, and I'm going to invite you to a new kingdom and to a people who rally around the greatness and goodness of me as their king. And so, um, do you remember back in the parable of the vineyard? Remember the, the tenants? I think those tenants are a lot like us. That God has given us an amazing life. God has set us up with, with, with this life, with the friends, the family. We look at our jobs, we look at our lives and what we've accomplished. And it's so easy for us to take credit. Or just like, look what I've done. Or just and to forget God's whole role in setting up for us, being good to us. So we're a lot like those tenants. And um, we saw, like if Jesus were to come this morning, he would be totally right to just condemn me, to just look at me and say, just like, you know, in the parable, when they said, what's the owner going to do? He's going to come and destroy the tenants. If, if we just laid it out, all that God has done for me and the way that I have lived my life, it would be absolutely fair for Jesus to just destroy me because I have, I have not been a humble man. I have not bowed my knee to my king like I should have. And so um, you would be next, okay? That would be every one of us. There was a powerful verse that Jesus 
tucked in at the very end of that parable. It's verse 10 in, in chapter 12. Jesus said, after he said that the owner came and destroyed the, the tenants, in verse 10 he said this, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. So the stone in the Old Testament a lot of times was a picture for the Messiah. And so, again, remember when Jesus is saying this, he's saying it on Tuesday and on Friday he's going to die. Like these religious leaders are still plotting to how they're going to kill him. So Jesus, the Messiah, the stone, is going to be rejected and is going to be, is going to be killed. But he is going to become the cornerstone. And this is God's doing, and it's marvelous. So Jesus is going to be rejected, but through his death and rejection, there's going to be a cornerstone. He is going to become the foundation of an amazing kingdom that God is going to build on this rejected Messiah. And that is our hope. Like that is a picture of who Jesus is as our king. That is why we need to bow our knee to him because he's the guy who was rejected for us. He took our sin and our rejection on himself. We rejected God. We sinned. We disobeyed. We deserved the judgment. Jesus took it so that if we put our faith in him, we become, he's the cornerstone, and then we become part of this building that other places in the New Testament talk about, about that being the church, an assembly of people who bow their knee, realizing that we're sinful, but we have a king who died for us, gave his life for us, and now through him we get to be part of the kingdom of God. Like that is our hope. And that is why Jesus is our king. That, is, that's, that qualifies him, that he died, the sinless son of God, died in our place, rose again from the dead, and now invites us through him to be part of the kingdom of God. And that is why it says, this is a marvelous thing before our eyes. You know, he told us, I think the key verse in the whole book of Mark is that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He sets us free from our foolishness of thinking this kingdom is ours, all that's in our life is ours. He sets us free so that we can bow our knee and follow him as our true king. And so now you look back at all those other areas he touched on when, when the person said, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? So what we do now is through Jesus, through King Jesus, we are set free not to put our confidence is Obama in office? Is Trump in office? Is there a Republican? Is there a Democrat? Like we, we transcend all of that because we don't wave the R flag or the D flag. We wave, we wave the J flag. Like Jesus is our king. And so that's why in Romans 13, that's why in First Peter, Christians are called to submit to authorities. Christians are called to, to honor the authorities. And so you go, yeah, but they don't have the government like we do today. Theirs was probably a lot worse, all right? They were killing Christians at that time. And so, like, and when Paul says and Peter says, submit, like, that's, that's the life we live because we have a greater king who protects us and provides for us. We don't cling to this party, that party. We don't cling to our career. We don't cling to how the stock market's doing. We don't cling to those smaller, small kingdom things. We cling to the king. And so he sets us free to be a people who are known for serving and for, for loving and giving our lives for each other. I love this statement that the early church used to make, in, in, again, in such hostile times. There's a testimony of a Roman soldier named P P um, Pacomius who um, 
was leading a, a cohort of soldiers and they were oppressing Christians. And yet the Christians would come and feed his troops and bring water to his troops. And, and it's, he's written, we've got documentation of this guy that was just blown away by these people. How could these people live like this? And it forced them to look, why did they behave like this? I got to look at what they believe. And when they looked at their beliefs and saw that they were following this man named Jesus, Pacomius himself became a follower of Jesus. Like that is our call today, that our, our, we do not, we do not put our confidence and our trust and our well-being in these smaller things. Our confidence is that Jesus is our king. So that's how we handle that one. We look at the Sadducees, and they're, you know, there's no power in their lives. And they take the whole 39 books of the Old Testament and reduce it to five. So how should we live? We should be a people that if Jesus is truly our king, man, we are hungry to learn more and more about, I don't want to just take the few parts of the Bible that I'm comfortable with or that I know. Jesus, here's my life. Like wherever I am still in error, show me. Like whoever it is in this room that knows the Bible the most, like you've got so far to go. Like that's how awesome this book is. It's just loaded with truth. And it's not just, sorry, I'm getting excited. It's not just like how much you know, but are you actually doing this? Are we living this? And so a a question I have is like, um, just to be honest with each other, Um, when is the last time you truly experienced the power of God in your life? Like you just, no doubt, it wasn't just a coincidence, wasn't just a lucky thing, wasn't just a good day, but the power of God is you tasted it, you saw it in your life. You guys, there's often a direct connection between your hunger and your for and your obedience to God's word. Like that's where God's power begins to work, when God's people just line up with what he says. We bow our knee. He's the king. He tells us what to do and we do it and his power shows up. Like that's the kind of people Jesus is saying, don't be like Sadducees, but you bow your knee to me. You listen to what I say. You do it and you watch. You watch what God's going to do in your life. So then you get to this greatest commandment that this guy says, okay, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God, heart, soul, and mind. My impression is that scribe took that statement almost kind of like a, yeah, man, almost like a triathlete that's like, give me the hardest course. Or if you know what a Tough mutter is, like those 24-hour deals we climb through barbed wire and mud and all that. So like, yeah, just bring it on. Like, actually, that guy should have just fallen on his face. And so there is no way I can love God with my heart, soul, and mind. And then even harder than that, how can I love my neighbor? Like, you don't know my neighbor, or you don't know my family, or you don't like, how can I love the people in my life? There's, that should have dropped that guy to his knee to hear that these were the greatest commandments. Instead, on, on our knees in front of a king like Jesus, we should say, Jesus, I don't love you like this. I do not love people like this. Help me. Show me how to love this way. Whenever God gives a command, he doesn't just command you and then just say, I hope that works out for you. You know, that's, that would be mean. But when he gives a command, he also gives us the ability to do it. What's the ability? Where's the power come from for us to love God, heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbors like ourselves? That has got to come from the power of the love of God for you. Whenever the New Testament says, this is love, starts with that statement, it makes a beeline to the cross. So when Jesus rolled out the greatest commandment on Tuesday, Three days later, he was going to put the greatest commandment on display and put the empowerment and the enablement to do the great commandment into, into reality. That when we look at what Jesus has done for us in the cross, when we embrace that, when we fully understand, I mean, if you want to fall more in love with God, you've got to see him more clearly. The more you see God, the more you're going to really love him. And the way you see God is through Jesus. You see the life that he lived. 
We see how he walked through this Passion Week, giving his life for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus gave his life for us. You know, that scribe was close. You know, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. I wonder how many people this morning, even just listening, are, would, Jesus would look at you and say, well, you're not far. You're not far. You know, my, my encouragement to you is like, you, the way to get from not far to in is to just fall on your knees and say, Jesus, you died for me. And that's what I need. I can't do this. I can't live this life. I can't live this Christian life. I need you. That's how you go from not far to in. And so what happens then is that loving Jesus isn't just a decision. Um, it's not something that, that you just try to do each day, but it becomes something that's compellingly attractive. When you look at who Jesus is and what he's done, it's his glory, it's his beauty that just compels us to delight in him. That's, that's what he's talking about. And then when you know you're loved by God like that, then you're, you're way more equipped to love the people in your life. And so then we come to that, that um, the woman and her mites, her coins. And um, this isn't going to be like, poor if you need your money. I'm just saying Jesus talks about money a lot. And here's the deal. Like if you really want to see if your knees bowed to Jesus, you got to look at your money. you got to look at what you're doing with your money. And uh, this woman turned heads um, because she gave all she had. The application of this is not go home, empty Hills Bank, uh, credit union accounts, and just throw it all into part for you. That's not the application here. I uh, can't say that for sure. Maybe God's got that for you, but I don't, I don't see that through scripture. You use your money. There's good things you use that for, that kind of thing. But you do got to ask, like our, our barometer of how devoted we are to Jesus really has a direct link to our giving to our bank statements. And so just like that woman left the temple that day and had no idea where her next meal was coming from, she did know that God is great and that his God is good. And the more we're convinced of that, the more we let go. I had some great conversations after last hour, like God has taught me more probably in that area of my life than, than any other that come to mind, at least right now, that each year, and I've told you guys some of this, that each year Lori and I sit down to budget, we try to just keep bumping up. What are we giving? What are we giving percentage-wise? More, more, more. And guys, I still am ashamed to say, but that's hard to do. Like I just go, ooh, you know, and I just write that, ooh, you know, I just send that money, ooh. And it just, there's a part of me that's like, oh. But guys, God has never let us down. Like year after year after year, we just found out something about one of our kids that um, with her college stuff that, we weren't planning on. It's just kind of like God just going, here. It's just like, God, you're just good. It's good. Why don't I trust you more? You know? And those are, I think, some of the most adventurous times in our lives where we know it's not us. We know it, I don't have this, but I'm just putting it out there and I'm trusting that God is great or good and he's going to meet our needs. And he continues to do that. And so um, I just, I'm excited about this passage and I'm excited about what Jesus is saying to us today that if we're truly a people that bow our knee to King Jesus, just think about the kind of people that are leaving today and just entering work tomorrow, school, this city. Um, we're leaving as people who are uh, just blown away by what Jesus has done for us. So we're humble. And we step into this community um, that is so divided, this country that is so divided, not clinging to R or D, Obama or Trump or but we're clinging to Jesus, which frees us to serve 
to treat everybody with respect and dignity, to work hard, to care for each other. Like we're just free to do that. We're freed to, to even tomorrow begin our day with a, with a hunger for this book. And then we're throughout our week looking for places that other people in our lives, reading this book with us, helping us apply this book so that we can see the power of God. And then we're, we're people who uh, are generous with our stuff, with our time, with our money, that when we see needs, we meet needs. And that we strive to be that kind of church and we strive to be that kind of people because we're just following the king who died and who set us free from living for just our small little selfish kingdoms to live for the kingdom of God, which is awesome because we have a great king. So let's close in prayer. And I just want you to go first. I just threw a ton at you. Could you just take a minute and just ask God, okay, out of all this, I just heard, what's one thing? Jesus, what's one thing as my king that you're asking me to do? And guys, for some of you, that might just be to go from not close to in. It might be, okay, Jesus, I surrender. Jesus, you're my king. I need you. You lead me. Thank you for loving me, dying for me. That might be your step. Otherwise, what was something else that you heard Jesus say? How can you bow your knee to King Jesus this week? Jesus, I, I just love studying your life and I love seeing you in the heat of the moment and the tension and the pressure, how you spoke with boldness and confidence, courage and wisdom. You speak truth into our lives. You, I believe you love the people you were speaking to. You were trying to set them free so that they would bow a knee to the true king of this universe. Help us do the same. May our knees be bent before you. May you be our king and our God. May you call the shots in our lives. And may you lead us, God, to be a people, a movement of people who, who love well, who serve well, who give well, and who bring you glory by how we live. You are awesome, Jesus. Thank you. In your great name we pray. Amen.